Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I emphasize community because I believe that community is the healthiest and best way for us to live. I believe that humans are basically friendly tribal animals. And when we associate with one another, in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we're cooperative, we're collaborative, we like to do things together, we like to play together, we often enjoy working together, we create things together, we like our families to associate together, we love eating together. At the very same time, it's imperative that we remain mindful that there are a small percentage of human beings who are very different. They are what I call social Darwinists. They believe that the fittest are meant to rule. These people have been around as long as we have recorded history. These are the people who play king of the hill, who went from being tribal chieftains to calling themselves kings. These are the people who made a collaboration with the church so that they ruled by what was called divine right. And who did they rule? Subjects, not citizens. We have a history of these people going way back to the Egyptians. You can move forward in time when Julius Caesar changed Rome from being a republic to an empire, and he was the dictator. Jump way forward in history. Pick someone, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, more recently, Hitler much more recently, Putin and Donald Trump. These are people who would be dictators. Again, they'd have us be subjects, not citizens. It's imperative that even in the hard financial times that we are all experiencing, I'm very aware of the fact that 70% of America is now living paycheck to paycheck, and that is anxiety producing, and it's not healthy. But even those of us suffering in that way must maintain our political awareness, and we must vote. We must not let the dictators change our country from the democracy, one person, one vote, and the republic, all equal before the law, change it from what it is to a dictatorship. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, I'm pleased to have with us here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mike Margolis and Jad Jazz Kodash. Did I say it right, Jazz? Yep, that's it. Okay, good. Mike is a psychiatric community catalyst, conversation creator. I'm not sure what that is. We'll find out. Co-founder and co-director of the Global Psychedelic Society, and it's a, which is a decentralized network connecting the leaders of psychedelic societies around the world to share information and resources. That sounds like something we're going to really enjoy hearing about. I could go on and on, but I'll just say that he has a lot of experience and connections in the field of psychedelics. Jazz is a cultural and medical anthropologist. It's been a long time since we've had a medical anthropologist on the program. She has been studying the psychedelic movement for the last seven years with a particular interest 
in the intermingling of conventional healing models with psychedelic-assisted therapy. You know that's an area right up my alley. Jazz is concerned with ensuring that psychedelic practices are carefully and ethically integrated into modern Western society and culture. Extremely important. We get to know what's really going on rather than what we hear, say, from pharmaceutical companies who give us the good news about their medications and very often fail to tell us about the unwanted complications of their medicines, which they sanitize and call side effects, as if they happen on the side instead of on your whole body. Welcome, Mike and Chaz. Thanks. Thanks. Actually, one clarification. I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm not a, a psychiatric community catalyst, but a psychedelic community catalyst. I just want to m- make that clear for folks. <laughs> Did I use the word psychiatrist? Uh, I think it's a psychiatric community catalyst, but psychedelic. <laughs> uh, oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, well, thank you for the pull-up. I like that. Yeah. I, I, I really like that a lot. The best way to deal with an error is to correct it immediately and move on. Right on. But yeah, thank you for having um, us. Really happy to be here with you. <laughs> so where shall we begin? Jazz, you're down in Sandy. You're in uh, Denver, Colorado, and Mike is in San Diego. Mm-hmm. How is it that both of you are on the program at the same time? <laughs> Technology. great answer how do you know each other do you work together yeah so i'm also the co-director of the global psychedelic society along with mike um and we have just kind of known each other just from being in the community over the past several years in the psychedelic community and i think our relationship really solidified during the pandemic when Mike started putting together the Global Psychedelic Society calls, where he brought leaders of societies from around the world onto a call every week. And this was during a time where everybody was feeling really isolated, um, and it really gave us an opportunity to feel into this international community that we're a part of and calling, you know, this, this psychedelic ecosystem and this mycelial network, bringing everybody together. And at the time, I was the executive director of the Montreal Psychedelic Society in Canada. And so that's where Mike and I really started to build our relationship. And over time, after I moved out of Canada into Denver, I was kind of looking for how I was going to be giving back to the psychedelic community and this opportunity to, you know, support the Global Psychedelic Society came up and haven't looked back ever since. (laughs) Uh uh Uh-huh. You're in Canada. Canada, of course is where some of the seminal work in psychedelics was done about a half a century ago, Humphrey and uh, and Osmond, right? Mm -hmm. And Mike, tell us, you're one of the founders or the founder of this global psychedelic society. It's hmm, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's a network, right? So around the world, there are, and for people who don't know what psychedelic societies are, these are community groups and education groups and integration groups all around the world. The first of its kind was the San Francisco Psychedelic Society, um, which was founded by the late Daniel Jabor. And Daniel, actually, there was an article published just after he passed, and he had a vision that other psychedelic societies around the world would emerge where people who were interested in psychedelics. And, and you know, this is like a decade ago when he was doing this, right? So psychedelics were even more taboo than they are today. But he had this idea of coming out of the psychedelic closet, creating spaces where people 
could yeah learn from each other and find community like you said in the beginning of this show community is so important and so um you know i like many others actually um were very influenced by him and started groups so i started working in the psychedelic space in 2015 in baltimore through you know my my um most public facing platforms called psychedelic seminars i've done a lot of events all of different parts of the world and have seeded some of these psychedelic societies along the way um, and many people over the years, um, there have been various proto versions of what is the global psychedelic society today, where people leading these different communities have gathered at international conferences, and there's been various versions of this. And I guess I sort of um, personally did take a lot of initiative to try to like keep this community going. And and you know, as Jazz mentioned, like when particularly when uh, COVID started, that was where it seemed, oh, this is the moment where we can bring all these people together. Um, so I think it's, it's, I think a lot of people, um, have, it's a network of many people, um, that I've kind of been in service to for these years. And I also want to really, um, give a shout out to Jazz, um, for what she's been bringing to this whole project. Um, particularly over the last year, um, you know, Jazz really stepped up and became the main, uh, facilitator of these calls and really helped to, uh, you know, it was, it the whole thing was going. We were having these calls, but Jazz came in a year ago and and it really leveled up got, and more cohesion came. She helped the group to kind of define values and started building a starter kit for people to create psychedelic societies around the world. And then in the last few months, more people have sort of joined this core team at the, so, you know, the Global Psychedelic Society is a network of, of leaders of these groups around the world. And then we have sort of within it this kind of core team that's in service to all of those folks. And more people in the last couple of months have been joining in. It's it's very exciting seeing um, how this has grown. Um, and it's been through many, many people. It's real interesting to hear that. I, I started doing um, very regular programs on psychedelic science back in 2005 on a national public radio affiliate. I I think at the time I did the longest series on psychedelics that have anybody had done in the country, and I feel like I was under a rock because I wasn't aware of what you were doing. I, 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 otherwise, I would have had you on years ago. Um, <laughs> really? So, does the tell us the website so people can tune in and look up the Global uh, Psychedelic Society? What is the website? Yeah, uh, the website's globalpsychedelic.org. Um, globalpsychedelic.org. Let's see if we can remember to mention it uh, several times during the interview because some people might miss it. And I think, I mean, this is a key piece of your contribution to cultural change. And, uh, and that's the way that people are going to know about you through the website after this interview. So uh, let's remember to, you know, we'll keep saying it. Um, the last medical anthropologist uh, that, I, that I interviewed and who was a friend was Marsha Rosenbaum, who was uh, the West Coast director of the Drug Policy Alliance mm. uh, that was founded by uh, uh, Ethan Nadelman in New York City, doc, uh, who was a lawyer and a psychologist. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance was, uh, was funded originally by uh, George Soros, and Ethan Nadelman was teaching at Princeton and Soros made him an offer he couldn't refuse to start this DPA, which is still going strong. Uh, Ethan retired, and it's a uh, it's an information dissemination uh, organization, a nonprofit, and uh, it's something that we ought to connect the global 
uh, psychedelic society too, because they are at least cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, I've, we've, we're definitely in relationship with Drug Policy Alliance. Have done some things oh, with are. them over the years. I know Ethan. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think actually it's a, that's a good, the GPS, it's, I guess I've personally known and worked with DPA, but I think GPS itself definitely could make a more formalized relationship with DPA too. Um, yeah, it's a good call. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, yes. And as a matter of fact, Chaz, I think Ethan may have retired to San Diego. And if so, um, you, would, you two would love to talk oh, to each other. I did not know that. That's good. That's good intel. I'm going to, okay, I need to hit up Ethan if he's, in, sure. if he's in San Diego. Wow. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my cruise yeah, in Jen, San Diego. I'm yeah. a member. Yeah. I know that, but I was mentioning it to you because you're an anthropologist mm. and Marsha Rosenbaum is a medical anthropologist and she and Ethan became partners. Nice. So, so <laughs> I'm going to tell you a cute story about having her on the program. Um, we're about to go on air, and uh, Marsha's all set up, the engineer's set up, and um, my board person, uh, those days we had a board, a giant board with all this kind of stuff. Now we just use a computer. It's really nice. Uh, says, uh, Dr. Miller, we've got a phone call here from the White House. So I said, very funny, you know, and she said, no, uh, it's, from the, it's, the, it's from the White House. And... Um, I said, well, get the phone number and call back. <laughs> so she did. And it was the White House. So it was the drug czar at the time. And the drug czar comes on the telephone and says to me, I want to be on your program today. And I said, why? He said, because you have some, per- some woman on who's going to talk about needle exchange. And I want to give another opinion about needle exchange. Needle exchange was harm reduction, and she was a pioneer in harm reduction. Um, And I said, well, you know, the program's already set up, so I really can't just put you on the panel now, but you're welcome to call in, uh, which he did. But the reason the story is important is it told me way back then, this is probably 2007 or 8, I'm guessing, that the government knew about my little tiny program in the middle of nowhere. The fact that the government knew about it and was taking the time to make this call in, this was before the algorithmic, we know everything about every phone call and every email and everything you wear and your clothing, et cetera, right? But it was an eye opener. Mm -hmm. It was a real eye opener. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's that story. What else would you like to share about the Global Psychedelic Society? We've got a lot. We've got a lot to share, I think. Um, Well- Now's the time. <laughs> um, Mike, do you want to start with talking about this fundraiser that we're working on? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so, and maybe some some context setting too, right? So these, there are hundreds of psychedelic societies that are around the world that I was kind of mentioning before. and Outstanding. Uh, Great. Yeah. And and this these are the places where, you know, some, a lot of people that are, both curious for the first time or also people who are experienced and just maybe isolated and don't have people to talk to can come to find community. Um, and that, you know, and I want to return to that, right? How important community it is and how many times people have said, oh, I went to a psychedelic society event and I made this connection that was really significant and meaningful to me. 
and how I've, you know, I found my tribe there. And this happens through these psychedelic societies all around the world. And it's, I see this, um, this work as intrinsic, right? It's just, it's so important. And my, uh, my, what I've noticed over the years is that it's also a lot of that work's been unsung work and you have psychedelic society leaders all around the world, people that are, and it's a lot of work, right? To organize events, events, event production isn't easy. You know, you have to book the speakers, do the logistics, figure out uh, this, that, and the other thing. And there's so many moving parts in the marketing and, um, and people do it and that people come and they have these amazing experiences, but the, the organizers are very often becoming martyrs. Um, <laughs> It's a, I, in, I don't know if it's a, your last name, the meaning of your, I didn't know that was the meaning of your last name until today, Jazz, but um, that is a, a very, it's a very common situation, right? And they burn out, right? So people, well, sure. people are doing this really important work, but you know, you don't really make uh, exactly, you're not rolling in the dough um, by being a psychedelic society leader. Um, but if I think about what's the psychedelic future I want to see, right? And like, so yeah, that's great if we, and, and I, I fully support, you know, what MAPS is doing to bring MDMA as an FDA approved medicine. Um, but if we end up in a future world where, um, you know, psychedelics are legal or medical, but only through therapists or doctors or people's first, you know, what's the first touch point someone should have, right? Um, do they want to, do you want to be looking at a pamphlet in a waiting room in a therapist's office at the first thing you ever learn about psychedelics, right? I think it's in community. I think it's from elders. It's from peers. It's going into an event, going to maybe a current future brick and mortar, uh, a, you know, tea house, let's say setting. Um, and I, you know, and we're, there's lots of emphasis these days on, okay, let's fund the research. Let's get this research, um, through, which is great, right? But I don't see the same emphasis, even though people know and value the importance of community. Um, the community builders are not really being resourced, right? To the and it's such a very, very critical thing that people know the value of, but aren't really. Um, there's kind of a discongruence here, right? So what this we're doing? I want you to I want you to elaborate on this, Mike, about this this uh, this incongruence. I think you need to clarify, please. Yeah. Well, people say they value the community builders. They'll go to an event and say, "Wow, that was so important to me, so meaningful. I really love this work. I love this community." Right? And yet, All right? So, so often, um, you know, how many times do do people get asked, like, "Oh, why are you charging money for education? It should be free." I've gotten this reaction many times, like this, 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 um, almost disgust from people that how dare you charge for your, your events, right? So there's this expectation, even though people say they value community, there is an expectation people seem to have that the community builders should be working for free, should be doing this work. And as I see it, it's not sustainable. And I've watched it time and again, people do this amazing work and they burn out. And that what I want to see instead of that, I want to see these communities thriving, right? I want to, I want to see a situation where, I mean, imagine if every psychedelic community builder around the world 
actually was being paid to do that work. And they didn't have to worry. Like you said, people, how many people are living paycheck to paycheck? What if these community builders doing this thing that we value so much that we say is so essential, if they could really focus on that work and on serving their communities and creating integration circles, education events, socials, all those things. I think um, everybody who's in the the front lines of the psychedelic movement right now are wearing multiple hats that are not necessarily um, their specific um, expertise. And that's because this is such an emerging ecosystem and an emerging movement. And, you know, people don't really like this word, but an emerging industry as well. Um, we don't really like to call it an industry, but it is, right? Um, that the people who are actually educated on the on psychedelics, whether it's therapy, whether it's community organizing, whether it's research or politics, we're, we're such a small group of people that we have to wear multiple hats because as what we're seeing right now with the psychedelic movement expanding, we're having a lot of people like businessmen, for example, um, and venture capitalists, for example, who don't know about the psychedelic movement that are coming in and are doing things as business as usual And we do things very differently in the psychedelic space, right? And so it is really important that we be careful about who is wearing what hats. And that's why I think we see a lot of people in the psychedelic movement wearing multiple hats. And I think it's Mm -hmm. also really um, important to note that I'm not only a medical anthropologist, but also a cultural anthropologist. And because of that... I kind of go wherever the culture is bringing me to, right? Where as mm-hmm. a cultural anthropologist, when you're in your field, you know, and you're doing participant observation, um, you end up participating in whatever it is that your culture that you're observing um, and studying is kind of asking you to participate in. And so as a result, I've worked in tech. I've worked in a SaaS company, software as a service. I've worked in politics. I worked on the Colorado initiative here that that just passed proposition 122 uh, and I've worked in community organizing because that's really where my heart lies you know and I've also worked in addiction um and in validated measures and scales and so as an anthropologist I get to be very multifaceted I'm writing a whole series of books on psychedelics as you may know I did one called psychedelic medicine I just came out with one called psychedelic wisdom in which Elders in their 70s, 80s, and one in their 90s outed themselves about 30 to 40 years, you know about it, of psychedelic experience, because I want the public to know that real good people, outstanding people, have been using these psychedelics. It's not just a bunch of weirdos jumping out of windows, which is the disinformation that the government has been spreading. So that's part of cultural change. But the what, what it, it, it connects with you two is I'm working on a book on psychedelics called Psychedelics, Serious Adverse Effects. And the reason, and I think this is the first time I may be talking about it on the air. And the reason I'm doing this book is because I think it's our responsibility as members of this psychedelic society and psychedelics association, psychedelic tribe, however you want to call us, to tell the whole story, to tell a different picture than what the pharmaceutical companies do, which is they give you the good news they hide the bad news, right? And they, they try to hide and sanitize what they call side effects, which I call unwanted complications of medicine. So I think it's our responsibility to tell about the negative effects. And where you two could help me is with connecting me with psychedelic societies around the world that I could connect with 
and find those people who are willing to talk about the adverse effects because what I'm running into is people are very hesitant to talk about negative effects because they don't want to rain on the parade of enthusiasm that we are having for finally having a renaissance after some of us waiting 50 years for it, right? Nobody wants to be the, oh, that's the one who told the story about so-and-so who got even more depressed. So I've been running into some of that, but I'm sure with your help, I can find people who will give me the, you know, the straight scoop on what they've seen. And, per- and I, professionally, I've seen some negative effects. I got a letter in the mail this week from a guy who microdosed with uh, psilocybin and went into a depression for a couple of weeks. So are, was, you, are you talking about like a book tour? No, I'm going to write this book. I'm not going to take it on tour. I like staying at home. Okay. But after I, but after I publish it, then my publisher will distribute it. I think, okay. I think what he's yeah. saying um, is um, because we have this n- international network of people, um, we can help him find others to t- that would be willing to talk about the adverse effects. Yeah, that's one of the many things that right. um, is really beautiful about creating this international network is uh, actually creating, um, you know, bridges to each other um, and and, build, and bringing people together that uh, currently are really far apart. Um, and maybe, you know, Richard, you don't have access to people who are working in Czech Republic. There's an amazing, outstanding Czech Republic uh, Psychedelic Society who's been doing a, amazing oh, that, work. That would be so right? wonderful. And then with the Global Psychedelic Society, we get to we get to build those relationships and bring more people together. We also get a lot of people in, I, in Europe saying, you know, that that everybody is watching the United States when it comes to policy, for example. We so we have so much to teach each other, and we're really doing ourselves a disservice um, by not interacting closer together internationally. And we're so U.S. focused, I think, in the psychedelic movement. Well, there's a reason for that, Jazz, and the reason is that if the other countries around the world don't do what we want in this area, psychedelics, it could be six other areas. If they don't follow our policy, we hurt them. And I mean that literally. And I'm going to give you an example. I went to Israel with Rick Doblin and Michael Midhoffer and a group of other scientists some years ago. And we went there for the express purpose of talking to them about using MDMA with their people suffering from PTSD because there were body parts flying around in the cities. That was during the Infatata, and that was terrible. And the head of their Israeli Supreme Court came over to me after a talk, and she put her arm around me very nicely, and she said, Richard, we would love to do MDMA. We know the research, and we know it would help our people with PTSD. But if we use MDMA, your country will sanction us, and we will suffer financially. And that's why I'm telling you that the rest of Europe and all the other countries are, lo- are looking, because we can be so brutal about spreading our policies, even the misguided ones, such as these. And, and you p- both know the history as well as I do, that the, the international policy set by the United States was a result of this racist Harry Anslinger, you know, who, who was appointed by his, by his uncle to be head of the uh, the. Uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1935, and we're still suffering from that racist. It's it's terrible. But he went to he was allowed to go to the United Nations and tell the countries of the world what their drug policy was going to be, and all of a sudden, money, these psychedelics became illegal. So that's unfortunate. But I love the fact that you could connect me with people in other countries, you know, and and they would talk honestly. Well, let me let you get a word in edgewise. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I want to add to this too. This is absolutely the exact kind of thing that we're creating and building, right? So these um, these psychedelic societies around the world, and just um, important to note here, right? These aren't chapters of the global psychedelic society, right? These are actually independent organizations. So we don't own them. We don't control them. They're pre-existing. What we've created is a network, right? So of these independent organizations to share information and resources and also for us to create information and resources and, and create connections. And so the types of things that we want to do with this global psychedelic society, with the GPS, is exactly this. So we'd like to, yeah, disseminate information to psychedelic society leaders and bring in, for, you know, from folks like yourself to then bring, bring things back to you. Set up the, I asked about book tours because that's another thing that we want to do is uh, we want to help people. Uh, actually, when Michael Pollan's book came out, um, that was something that I helped him and his people do was to connect on his tour with each of the psychedelic society leaders along the way. And we'd love to do that for more people. Um, we'd like to create mentorship programs for people who are starting psychedelic societies, connect them with a, an existing psychedelic society leader to show them the ropes a little bit. Uh, ideally, someone who's physically, geographically local, that in tandem with the starter kit that Jazz has been putting together over the last year. Uh, but there's so many things that um, you know, if if we really, if we in the world really care about this community building work, if we really care about the importance of culture shift, um, if this work is properly resourced, there's so much that we can do to empower community builders all around the world. And so that's sort of a, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that we're here to do. And what's your, what's your website again? <laughs> Globalpsychedelic.org. Um, okay. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> Globalpsychedelic.org. I've got to remember to keep saying it. We, I want people to know about you. I think it's, and, and that's the way. Yeah. I'm not going to run through this entire uh, podcast <laughs> or internet broadcast to hear it. So we'll say it. And it, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I love your enthusiasm. I love your enthusiasm <laughs> for this. So both of you, it's, it's, it's outstanding because it's what we need, yeah, of course. It's, it's very exciting. You know, this whole, the, this network, actually, it's been to date, uh, it's been going on for, this has been years in the making, like literally years. And, but t until now, really, it's, it's been very quiet. It's just been kind of a network, right? We've had these calls with people around the world. We've had gatherings, you know, taking, whenever there's big conferences, like at the MAPS conference coming up in June, we're going to have a big GPS summit where we gather in person together in a, uh, and we're setting up an unconference for people to connect with each other. Uh, but this has all been happening. So this has been happening for a while, um, pretty quietly though, and behind the scenes and not really public facing. And what's happening now, which is very exciting for me is like, now we're actually starting to um, become more public facing and talk about like this uh, because, uh, and it's uh, in large part, I, I, you know, I'll shout out Jazz again. You know, Jazz came in and added all this new energy and others have come as well. Shout out to Marisa and Matt on the team, you know, folks are, and to Tessa and Pammy, just a, a name drop, to name drop just a few of the folks that have been helping. And please do, please do. <laughs> I love you giving credit to your teammates. I mean, I mean that. Yeah, we've got Heather helping with onboarding, you know, all of these different folks that are coming in. And this has been, over the last few months, it's really grown. And it's grown to a point where now, okay, we actually are becoming a public facing thing with a website, globalpsychedelic.org. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
and, and it's really amazing for me to see um, this all emerge and all of these people coming in who see this and believe in this and are coming with their own genius and their own skills. And everyone on the team is just, uh, you know, again, I'll say they're rock stars and coming in with um, all these amazing superpowers. And, and I, I, I can see so like there's so much that is needed in the world um, for this work of community building. And there's so much that we're we can do. Um, so, yeah, it's all really it is. I am enthusiastic because it's very exciting. It was just <laughs> like what you I, I, I wanna, said wanna, earlier, th- you know, making sure that we have the right people in place to to be doing the things that they are most expert at. And that's really where we're yeah. getting to as a GPS, as an entity, because for so long, really, it was just Mike holding this on his own. And slowly, slowly, uh, different people have been have been showing up and putting raising their hands saying, hey, you know what, I'm really good at this thing. Um, you know, having our somebody who's really good at marketing, that's something I don't know how to do. Someone who's really good at branding or a bigger vision, like viewing the bigger vision of what GPS can be. And then, you know, Mike can do the things that he's really good at and I can do the things I'm good at. The way I see psychedelic societies are kind of like the third prong to a tripod, you know, and if we're looking at um, if we're looking at at changing the cultural narrative around psychedelics, um, it's not we need all three components and the three of them I'm going to name are um, are pol- like political or legislation. Right. Um, without legislation, we can't start changing the, the narrative um, medical. Mm-hmm. Um, so without these clinical trials, people are not people who are not psychedelically aware are not going to start seeing the value of psychedelic societies because or sorry, of psychedelics, because they you know, as as a medical anthropologist, I've been taught that the Western biomedical uh, approach to understanding healing is very much a culturally specific form of of healing. Right? You you come into uh, a doctor's office, and there's somebody at the counter that takes your information, and then a nurse comes in and takes your vitals, and then a doctor comes with a coat. That, those are all culturally uh, specific things that an individual needs to feel safe. And to know that this is legitimate, right? So we need that medical component as well if we're going to change the narrative. And then we need the cultural component. And that cultural component we're seeing happen in many different places. We see like documentaries coming up on Netflix, which is available to the public. You go to a clothing store and so many of the T-shirts have mushrooms on them now. Like I bought a bag (laughs) from Urban Outfitters that has mushrooms all over it. You know, that's new. That's new. And that's how you know the culture is changing. Right. And so the way I see it is we have like politics and research kind of at the top level, um, changing the narrative from the top down. Right. Telling the people that we that these are okay now. Right. And then we have the cultural uh, landscape, which to me is psychedelic societies kind of on the ground, like the grassroots catching everybody as they take their first psychedelic. And, you know, someone takes the, the, the like LSD for the first time and they're like, whoa, what was that? My whole life just changed. Everything I know about life before is really different and I don't know how to make sense of it. Are there other people in the world who have experienced this? It's like, Oh, yes. If you come to a psychedelic society event, you'll meet others who've had that experience. And to me, that is harm reduction. That 
is bringing psychedelics into the biomed like into the western landscape in an ethical way so to speak right as as you read in my bio it's really addressing all angles of re-educating the public um you know as you mentioned in the 1970s there was so much propaganda around you know acid fries your brain and things like that and how do we change that is through leaning on all three of these legs of this tripod and that's where we come in, where, you know, we and all the other psychedelic society leaders who have been working tireless, tirelessly um, are doing that cultural component. I can tell you, uh, with regard to the political, a way you could h- help me and part of my cause, because, as you know, the program is Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm interested in politics. In Denver, one of the things I'm going to be asking the audience, hopefully I'll have one, uh, to do is to do what I did two weeks ago here in the city of Fort Bragg in Mendocino County, California. I went to the city council and I asked them to agendize the decriminalization of psychedelic plants and fungi. And I'm going to ask the audience, every one of them, to go to their city council all around the United States and ask for the decriminalization of psychedelic plants and fungi. And, uh, I know that um, I think Carlos Plazola, who I, I don't know, you know mm-hmm. Carlos, who he headed up the, yeah, you do know him. He headed up the uh, decrim movement mm-hmm. in Oakland. He told me a couple of weeks ago that 17 cities around the United States have now decriminalized psychedelics. By the way, are you two in favor, each of you in favor of decriminalization as a step towards legalization? Or do you, how do you see that? Would you prefer just legalization or just criminal? Decrim, what, what, what's your position? Decrim all the way. I mean, I, I believe all drugs should be decriminalized um, straight. You know, nobody should be in prison for using a substance, period. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm fully in support of decriminalization. And yeah, I, I quite you like... You see, the reason I'm putting it... The, excuse me, Jazz, go ahead. I, I quite like um, this hybrid model that we built in Colorado, which is both a decriminalization model and a regulated access model, because as I mentioned before, you know, creating um, an environment that the, the regular, you know, Joe Blow or, you know, a, a conservative individual who doesn't understand psychedelics can also feel safe in. That to me is also expanding access. Expanding access to psychedelics isn't only financial access, but also cultural access. And so I like this hybrid model. And it's, it's really funny you say this, Richard, because today everybody in Colorado, all the activists are at the Capitol, um, discussing a bill that was just introduced two days ago about the implementation of Proposition 122. So, you know, everybody absolutely get involved in your, in your government and speak with your, representatives it's it's i can't i can't stress what richard just said enough it's so important use your voice yeah yeah i mean no you first mike oh okay Uh, yeah i'll just say i i'm totally in support as well of access through medical or regulated access but for me what's really important is that those don't become the exclusive pathways for access so i what i don't want to see is a world where there's exclusively access through medical and regulated um, and I'm going to borrow some ideas. There's a great TED talk. It's actually, um, it's actually about sex work, but it applies to the drug war as well. It's called the laws that sex workers really want. And, um, what she talks about in this, uh, in this talk is that how when some of some systems of regulation 
um, what they, if you create that without the decriminalization, you create these two tiered um, models, right? Where there's kind of the legal market and then the black market. And then there's what she calls a backdoor criminalization. And so that's, so if you do a legal regulated model or medical model without also having decrim, you can end up in a scenario where, okay, there's regulated access, but then other people, let's say people who are doing community healing ceremony in a different way than whatever, you know, is the FDA. And, and I don't, I don't think the FDA's model is the only way that people can or should do psychedelics. Um, so if you don't decriminalize, then you could still have, even though there's access through this medical model, but it's going to be only through kind of pharmaceutical companies and corporations and people doing community healing could still be criminalized exactly. for using psychedelics, for providing psychedelics and ceremony. So yes, let's have medical and regulated access. And at the same time, I think it's a critical um, foundation that there is a decriminalization First. there where people can yeah. choose to engage in other ways as well. And there's uh, all kinds of... Um, and of course, there's safety concerns around that. So in the unregulated markets, how do you th th how do you address safety concerns? And there are answers to that as well. But I just that's something important, I think, to name is that, um, yeah, th that there has to it has to be not exclusively the regulated act. This is this is a, a, a naughty issue and it's we're not quite there yet, but it's we're going to have to face it. Yeah. I, and I, I know the sex workers pretty much that I've interviewed. I've got a book coming out that I've where I've interviewed a lot of sex workers as well as sex parts. It's called Freeing Sexuality. It'll be out in a few months. And the sex workers are telling me that they prefer decrim yes. to legalization right. because they think that's safer. Because with decrim, it means the police are told, don't right. go after people. So that means nobody will go after them. But if it's prostitution is legalized, then... Those of them who don't get licenses or don't play by the rules are going to be thrown in jail and they're going to be in trouble again. Exactly. And that's what we've seen with cannabis, right? In states where, like Colorado, right, where we was legalized, people still get arrested for marijuana, right? If, you're, if, you, if you try to sell marijuana to someone and aren't licensed, you can still go to jail for marijuana, right? So, it's, so that, that's exactly what happens. And, and this is, um, and of course, there are concerns that I was alluding to, right? If you decrim... And now there's an unregulated market. What do you do about the safety concerns? But this is exactly where the community building work, the cultural work is so important. Um, and we're, I think we're culturally, um, we, we've almost gotten a little lazy, right? Where we, we believe that we we're so dependent on knowing like, okay, this person has this license or this letter and therefore I can trust them. And someone wrote a regulation and therefore that's and that's somehow become culturally the only thing we know of how to know what trust is. And what I would see is let's come back to a more uh, a, a longer standing form of trust. Right. And that is community. That is through uh, reputation and relationship. And so it is through community building work that actually we can make decriminalized and you know, unregulated models can be safe if you have the right community structures. And there's a lot of things to to consider. Um, a nice pop, <laughs> um, but but it can be created. Yeah, and and that's that very component. By the of, way, um, of protecting communal use is exactly what people are at the Capitol for today. Um, you know, the way that we wrote the initiative was to decriminalize uh, what we called bona fide therapeutic or communal healing services where people are allowed to gather in community and share the medicines. 
And this bill that they just introduced, you know, right now, I think by the time that this airs, it may be different. Hopefully we get amendments written in um, is going to remove that privilege, forcing people to only if they if they want to be a facilitator, they have to get a license. And we don't want that. We really want people to be able to offer these medicines to their friends. Like I can sit in this home right here and give my partner medicine, psilocybin or, you know, and and that not be criminalized. And I don't need to have a license in order to do that, you know. Well, the major uh, um, plus that your position gets is that anybody can grow mushrooms in their Mm -hmm. house. It's very different than dealing with pharmaceuticals. And that's a big problem for the government. I mean, people can grow marijuana, and plenty of them did. But when you're living in an apartment on the 33rd floor, it's not that easy unless you do a home light and all that kind of stuff. But everybody knows, I mean, most if you want to find out, you can learn that you can grow mushrooms in your kitchen. And, uh, and that really is a, is a very important piece of information, that you can have this very, this very interesting, important uh, psychedelic substance and just grow it yourself. There's really no need to buy And many buy psychedelic it. societies are actually providing workshops and teaching the, their communities, their people, how to grow mushrooms in their kitchen if they want to. And that's... Oh, fantastic. By the way, what's the name of your website there, uh, Globalpsychedelic.org. And on, <laughs> on our website, Global you could find all the psychedelic societies throughout the world that we have found, at least. And if you are leading a society and you're not there, please get in touch with us at globalpsychedelicsociety at gmail.com, um, and we'll get you on board. Oh, that's your, that's your actual email. Let's hear it. globalpsychedelicsociety at gmail.com, and the website is globalpsychedelics.org. Globalpsychedelic.org. Ah, no S on the end, yeah. globalpsychedelic. I'm sure if you go to Google, you'll find it. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, we're going to take a little, we've been going for quite a while, boy, this went right on by. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and while I'm uh, giving a commercial, uh, I'd like you to, to to think about anything you want to add that you might have forgotten or you want the public to know. And uh, here I go. And dear listeners, uh, please um, go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and uh, the archives are there without fee to you. Uh, please subscribe. My staff tell me that it helps the program in some way if you do something called subscribing, but you don't have to pay to subscribe. You just click on something. Um, what else? We we broadcast uh, every Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning, as well as the archives are available to you 24-7. Check out my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, which just came out, Psychedelic Medicine, which has the leading scientists in the United States presenting their research. I'm pleased to say going back, way back, 10, 15 years ago, Roland Griffiths is in the book, people like Dave Nichols, many other luminaries, giving the real scoop on their research. No holds barred. The same with psychedelic wisdom. These are real people, real scientists, real good people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, talking about their own 30, 40, and 50-year histories, taking psychedelics and how it changed their lives for the better, almost exclusively. Back to Jazz and Mike. Anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, I, I will. So I'll just echo again what Jazz just said. You know, find your local community. That is uh, whoever's listening. Find So on our website, globalpsychedelic.org, there's a map that we've been maintaining of all of the groups around the world. So 
look, find your local community there. And if you don't have one in your local town, reach out to us, or you want to start one, or you have one and we're not, I'm not listed, reach out. Um, by the time this podcast airs, I believe our fundraising campaign is going to be live. So if you've listened to this whole conversation, I'm assuming that means that what we're saying is resonating with you. So consider supporting this work and thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Jazz. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so Mike. much for having us. Thank you. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I look forward to seeing you again next time. I want to remind you that our amazing team consists of Charlie Deist, who's our producer, Ali Willis in Kansas City, our associate producer, David Springer, my amazing sound engineer, also in Kansas City. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.